what a great time of the year. I just absolutely love it. And the older that I get, the more and more I, I love this season. Of course, Josh Groban has been playing since November 1st. And uh, I make my uh, weekly time to listen to what Josh has to say and celebrate. Uh, and I, I'm really overwhelmed and encouraged as I contemplate this season, this year in particular, as a 50-year-old man. And I just have deep appreciation that ultimately what we are celebrating is the incarnation of love. Love that heals, love that reaches across divides. And what I love about the Christmas story itself is within the very story itself, we see a pattern of communication that God is a God who love, that, that pursues reconciliation, that moves across divides and spreads that love across to even those that we might consider outsiders or the they to our us. And I'll tell you, in this year in particular, I'm really trying to fortify myself with the fact that we are celebrating the incarnation of love through the coming of Jesus Christ. And I'm really trying to sit in meditation and really just trying to sit with this reality and to behold the image of God that we see in Christ. And in part, I'm trying to fortify myself for uh, the anxiety that's already rising up in me with 2024 being an election year. It is amazing the way election years, what they've become, particularly in this day and age of social media. Um, it, it was overwhelming in 2020 to see the divide, the anger, the name calling, the posturing. And I'm trying to enter into this year fortified with it so that we can be a voice that looks a little bit differently than the overall discourse that happens in our country, but it's not just American against American. It's also in the way that some expressions of our faith posture ourselves in antagonism to the world that we're called to love, that we're called to cross those divides and show the reconciling love of Jesus, and yet we get pulled emotionally into the noise of all the confrontation and, frankly, ugliness. I have come to posture myself because in election years, it seems that Americans tend to become some of the worst versions of themselves. And maybe if we take a minute to pause and we recognize collectively we might be a part of a movement that displays even our political convictions in the spirit of Jesus rather than the spirit of the division of partisan politics. And I take great comfort when I read the Christmas story and I'm reminded that this is indeed the heart of God. The cast of traditional Christmas characters speak of God's desire to bring together a variety of people across many different divides and contrasts races, genders, religions, socioeconomic, and religious classes. Think for just a minute, just, just as, we, as we browse across the characters of the Christmas story we find in the scriptures, there's Zechariah and Elizabeth in comparison to the story of Mary and Joseph. And here we see together the bringing together of the elder and the younger. Or think, for example, the shepherds and the angels who in Luke chapter 2 have this exchange with, with one another. Shepherds and angels, the beings of earth, and the beings of heaven. 
the spiritual and the physical being brought together. But one of my favorite contrasts that I have loved in the Christmas story are the Magi. The Magi represent an aspect of the generosity of God's heart and his universal love for everyone in a way, in a particular way that the other characters uh, don't quite emphasize. So let's think for just a minute about the Magi. Now, some of you Bible nerds are out there already forming an email. I know that there's a strong case for the fact that the Magi probably weren't there at the actual birth of baby Jesus. They probably came into the story sometime after that, possibly up to two years. But for this sake this morning, we're not going to let facts ruin our traditions, okay? (laughs) So let's think about the presence of the Magi. First of all, if you just go into the original wording, the Greek of what the translation of the word magi and look at it, you'll immediately see some discomfort. This word magi is magos, and it means a magician, an astrologer, by implication, a a magician. The definition is astrologer, magician, and some usage he would even say sorcerer, magician, or a wizard. Now, I don't think that wizard is what's being connotated in this, in this particular context, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to make a Harry Potter case or anything like that this morning. But it is important for us to know the way that word was originally used, because just reading that definition, I would guess, immediately creates a little tension in some of our hearts. When it certainly does mine whenever I read those words put together that way, especially as you think about the significance of the role they play in this story. And in fact, if we look into uh, some of the lexicon, Greek lexicon, into the helps, the word studies, we see that this word means it properly it's belonging to the Magoi, the Median tribe, a magician, one of a sacred caste, originally Median, who seemed to have conformed to the Persian religion while retaining some of their old beliefs. In other words, they were a priestly class of another religious persuasion. And yet here they are in the story and celebrating the origins or the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In the third century, as you can understand, they, 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 they were labeled uh, kings, which is why instead of, you know, we three magi of Orient is not what you're going to sing. What you're going to sing is we three kings of Orient, because that was switched somewhere in the third century. The magi were likely a priestly class of Zoroastrianism. They were astrologers. Now let's pause for just a minute and allow that to mess with some of our theological assumptions. That's always fun to do. But the reason why it's fun to do is whenever our theological assumptions get challenged, it's not for the point of argument, debate, or agitation. It's so that we can recognize maybe through the study of the systems of man, we have limited our understanding of our God. And so the Holy Spirit is kind enough to push on the boundaries of some of our theological assumptions so that we can move to a fuller appreciation and revelation of the heart of God. And what I appreciate most about that is that I I cultivated in my heart, again, I am 50 years old, so I am done with blaming 
my authority figures and the teachers of my past for all that was wrong in my life. I did a really good job of that in my 30s and 40s, mind you. But I'm moving beyond that, and I, I can't go back. I don't know what their intent was. What I know is what I heard and what I applied. And what I heard was faithfulness to Jesus resulted in a posture of antagonism to those outside of the faith. I heard a God of antagonism. In fact, it was a, quite a contradictory God because on one hand, I was taught in theology classes that on the cross, that the justice and judgment of God was satisfied, and yet we constantly were trying to discern what judgment God was intending to bring to earth through tsunamis and fires and floods and tornadoes. Very contradictory theology. And so the problem for me became not just that I represented this antagonistic God, but that's the God I lived with. He was angry with me all the time. And the peace that should have been known as knowing Jesus Christ, my advocate, was always replaced with this bit of shame that I was never quite measuring up. And the Holy Spirit was kind enough to reveal the way that thinking had become toxic to my entire system. Not only did it rob me of the intimacy I was to enjoy in my union with God, but eventually it also impacted the, the uh, credibility of ministry because of the way I was so antagonistic toward those outside of the faith. And, and really, I liked it. In fact, I almost think psychologically, I felt as if I were angry enough with them, it would help compensate for the reasons why God is angry with me. It created an urgency, an energy. But more than that, that toxic God was never a God I ran to in my brokenness. I was afraid of him. I was embarrassed of my brokenness before him. Therefore, I ran to lesser saviors, and they in turn deceived me and caused more harm to my soul and my mind. And eventually, this harmfulness began to manifest physically in my body because even though I would try to move forward and suppress it, as we all know, my body was keeping score. So as the Holy Spirit was faithful to, to challenge my theology, to show me a larger vision of God, it began to heal so many of the broken places in my own heart and even in my body that it compels me whenever possible to share that vision of God with others so that they too might be delivered from potentially harmful ideas that are creating a toxic environment in their minds and in their bodies. And then we read stories like this and we see a generosity, not antagonism. So let's take a look at Matthew 2, 1 through 2. Let's read a little bit more about these magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. 
Now, there are so many interesting things contained in that verse. For one thing, they recognize that there's this distance. There's this special calling of the Messiah to the Jews. They didn't say, where is our king? They said, where is this king of the Jews? But their, but their motive is not mere curiosity. It is what? Did you notice the last sentence? What is their motive in seeking out this king of the Jews? So that we can come and worship him. Now, I don't think that we can make strict doctrine of, of, over this one verse, but it does tell us that in some way God was revealing himself among people of a completely different faith persuasion. That those ideological limits did not put limits on the generosity of God and his desire to reveal himself by any means necessary. And he drew people of a different faith persuasion to himself so that they were motivated to seek after him so that they could come and worship him. Clearly, these men understood that this was no ordinary king because their motive is not mere curiosity. Their motive is worship. God speaks and leads them within the belief system with which they are familiar. With the Magi, we see one of the, another crossing of one of these divides we mentioned earlier. We see the crossing of the divide of the Gentile and the Jew, the pagan and the chosen. From the very beginning of the story of the Messiah, we see testimony to his association with the full spectrum of both clean and, quote, unclean humanity. Immediately, even at the picture of his birth, we see Jesus overcoming division. And so we stop and we ponder these mysteries. Some of us come through a doctrinal system that maybe makes room for this tension. Others of us come from a doctrinal system that it's treated very simplistically and it creates lots of tension because there's not room to make sense of how is it that the generous God is drawing people from all walks of life to himself. But we land at what is being revealed about the heart of God and the coming of Christ. Because as we talk about ad nauseum, and we will continue to talk about, Jesus is the exact representation of God. Remember, go back to, first, uh, to Colossians 1 and to Hebrews 1. We see this affirmation that Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. Hebrews go so far to make this strong language. He is the exact representation of God. And God is love. Thus, what we celebrate, my friends, in this season is the fact that Jesus is the embodiment of love. As we reflect on the life and teachings of Jesus, we see three truths about love. And perhaps we can land on these three words, incarnation, identity, and initiative. Incarnation, love is incarnated. Identity, love is our identity. And initiative, love takes the initiative. Let me pause here as I do a reversed Mr. Rogers. 
This time of year, I love it because I get to wear all my bulky sweaters and represent a different version of myself, which, by the way, whoever did Artemis the Elf, I really appreciate you making him so fit. It's given me a new vision for 2024. Uh, but you're properly dressed outside, and then you're, you're cooking inside all the buildings. So, all right, there, that's a little bit better. Incarnation, identity, and initiative. First of all, let's take this idea. Love is incarnated. The very beginning of the story is radically relational. God makes humanity and shares himself with them in a garden created for their flourishing. God reveals himself to humanity in the context of a relationship of love. And when we describe our faith, it's very, uh, uh, it is my passion to hear us make common this phrase, radical relationality. It's the easiest way of summarizing the heart of God and the heart of the Christian message and what it means to be saved. It's a, a restitution of radical relationality with God, with ourselves, and with others. And without those elements, I hesitate to affirm that there can ever be any real salvation. It is salvation manifested in the healing and reconciliation of radical relationality, a relationship of intimacy with God, with ourselves, and with one another, and ultimately with creation itself, but that's for another sermon. Jesus is described as a bridegroom, and the church is called his bride. One of the clearest metaphors from one of the most intimate of human relationships. This is what is used. This institution of marriage union is what is used by, used by Paul in the New Testament to describe the nature of what it means to follow Jesus and to be saved. It is not merely changing an ideological or religious conviction. It is about the experience of intimacy with the Almighty. That is the characterization of our lives. Jesus reveals the Father because the incarnation of Jesus becomes the embodiment of love. Now, I need to make a confession on behalf of the sound technicians. I neglected to properly make my notations, and so there's not going to be a slide for this scripture. So for just a moment, we'll go old-fashioned. I'm going to give you a few seconds. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. If you want to, if you brought a Bible with you, or if you have it on your device, you may take a quick, or actually, I think it's in the notes, though. If you have the notes, then it's in there. Someone's nodding. So never mind. Get off your devices. You can use the Bible or the notes only. I don't want anybody Facebooking during church. Which, by the way, when I get your messages, you know they're all time-stamped, right? So I just I want to remind people of that from time to time. Well, they weren't listening. They were emailing. Um, 1 John 4, 7 through 12. And really, for time's sake, let's look at verses 7 through 9, and then we'll drop down and look at verse 12. Dear friends... Let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now that passage is fascinating. We're not going to go too far. We're not trying to come up with new fangled doctrines. But I do find it interesting given the context and the way we've come to understand the life of faith 
that belief system is not mentioned in that, in that verse. The evidence of knowing God isn't correct belief systems. The evidence of knowing God is what? Love. Everyone who loves knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now look at that phrase. It doesn't say God is loving. Like, in my mind growing up, that's kind of how I read it. I'm not saying it was anyone else's fault by my own, but I read it as God is loving. In other words, I thought of love as an attribute of the divine. I didn't understand it as the fundamental essence of the divine. It's not simply that God is loving. God is love. It's the very essence of who he is. And so in that sense, when we say we're made in the image of God, synonymously, you know what we can legitimately say? We are made in the image of love. Thank you. That is why we cannot choose an ideology or a posture of non-love and expect to be healthy. Because non-love fights against the very basic essence of who we are. And it will not, it's not, it's not fitting for us. It's not a rebuke, it's just a recognition. Non-love is not fitting for us. And then verse 12, he says this, and this is really important because it speaks to embodiment and incarnation. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is made complete in us. So the only way that God is seen is through the loving actions of his people. God is love. The one who remains in love remains in God. God is seen and felt in the loving actions of his people. God reveals his love by sending the Son to show us the way of love. And what do we see in Jesus? This principle that self-giving is the way love is expressed and the way God is seen. I remember oftentimes, I, because I still believe in the power of prayer, I, I would say my understanding of prayer has expanded. But I consider it an honor in a way, I, I don't know. I mean, before, I, I don't know what it was all about for me exactly. I, I think that I saw prayer as a way of kind of being a magician. That if I, if I said the words right and my faith level was right, I could pretty much get God to do whatever I wanted. And, and I was sincere. I mean, I mean, I was kind of weird about it, to be honest. Uh, I, I, I'll have a moment of vulnerability and say to you, and hopefully you come back next week. When I was in my teenage years, I would set my alarm for like 6 a.m. And I, back then, I've changed since then. I was not a morning person. I was a teenager. And so I would put a bowl of cold water and a wash rag that we'd be soaking in it all night, and I would get up, and like the monks of old, I would immediately flagellate myself. Wake up, grab the rag, and slap myself in the face a few times. And then laying on my whatever 
Whatever, in, whatever functional thing in my room was meant for something else but became a clothes gatherer, I would grab that. I would go to that place in my room. And I would put on army fatigues. And in my mind, I was going to war. And I would spend an hour just exhausting myself as much as I could to, to say the right things and muster the right enthusiasm and the right faith to get God to do the things I wanted him to do. Now, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm really happy that that's part of my story. I don't think of prayer quite that way anymore because what I realize is that, is that prayer is about communion with God and removing those distractions and bringing our concerns before them. It's not about manipulating God or other people to conform to my will, which is kind of how I did it back then. But now there are still people in my life for whom I want to pray, God, reveal yourself to them. The only difference now is I'm very mindful. At the end of that prayer, when I'm silent, the answer might be, I will, and here's what I want you to do. Here's the mercy I want you to pursue. Here's the kindness that I want you to bring into their lives. And so now I recognize there is this dance, there is this partnership. Sometimes God answers my prayers without any awareness, conscious awareness on my part. But oftentimes, he invites me and postures me to become part of the answer to the prayers that I pray by calling me to partner with him and being the manifestation of that love that I'm wanting God to reveal to others. Love is incarnated. Number two, love is our identity. John 13, 34, 35. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. And look at this little phrase, by this. Such a powerful phrase. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if, what? If you love one another. Witnessing for Christ is not about memorizing every answer to the objections of your faith. I used to think that it was, and I spent a lot of time trying to fortify myself so that I have an answer for every objection. Because to me, evangelism was just fleshly argumentation and debate. That's kind of the category it was in for me. Now, again, I don't want to communicate and to say that I believe belief is unimportant. I believe, I do believe our beliefs affect the atmosphere of our heart it especially affects whether or not we're healthy or toxic. And it's rooted in our beliefs. That's for another sermon. I just don't, I'm not dismissing belief. But what I am saying is this. I grew up in Christian circles that said the way we testified to Jesus is by letting people know what we believed. But if you look to Jesus, this is not what he says. It's actually a lot simpler than that. The world will know you belong to me if you love one another. Loving one another is the highest expression of missional evangelism that we can pursue. And what's great is this, we're all qualified to do it. We're all equipped to do it. 
Love should be the defining characteristic of the church. Jesus didn't say that his disciples would be identified by their organized belief system. He said they will be identified by their love. Belief is healthy when it causes us to pursue love. Love is incarnated. Love is our identity. And I want to end with this thought this morning. Because those two ideas are incomplete without the third. Love takes the initiative. And as we come to a close and look at this final aspect, I want you to begin to create space in your heart for the Spirit to speak. Because it's not enough to know and to recognize that love takes the initiative. We've got to walk into this space where we're asking ourselves, what initiative is love calling me to pursue? Love is incarnated. Love is our identity. And love takes the initiative. Love is what empowers us to cross borders and divisions. Love not only empowers us, love compels us to be the ones who take the first step. Following Jesus as our Lord requires us to pursue the radical path of loving and reconciling both with our neighbor and our enemies. And let me put a little asterisk there. When I say enemy, I don't mean a very easy definition, as in someone across the ocean with a gun that wants to hurt me. Although that can be inclusive of that. But what I really want us to do is be willing to entertain the definition of enemy as anyone who is causing us resistance or frustration. That becomes our enemy. Sometimes I am the enemy of my wife. Not because I hate her and not because I want to harm her, but because in my flesh I'm acting in such a way that brings harm to her that creates resistance and frustration in her own heart. Sometimes I might view her that way myself. But if we're going to live by enemy love, we've got to stop idealizing in such a way that we will never encounter that situation, which is what most of us do. No, the enemy is those people that stir your ire and your anger and your annoyance and in the kindness of God, he's sprinkled a lot of those throughout the world. So we all have these opportunities to learn what it means to press into enemy love. And to make my opening point, in 2024, you'll be challenged with that all over again. You, you, those of you on social media will look and go, huh, I always thought they agreed with my politics. Delete. No friend of mine. And if you really want to go the extra mile, what I really like it is when people delete me on social media, which that's fine. That happens all the time, to be honest. Uh, but usually I find out by accident because I, the, the Facebook will say, you ought to be friends with so-and-so. And I'm like, well, I thought I was. Uh, but every so often I'll get a text or an email where someone says, I just wanted you to know I had to delete you from my Facebook friends list. Okay, thank you for the heads up. But this is, this is our response now. This is one of the damning things about social media. It is, has taught us to reject P 
people who disagree with us ideologically. That we see people in categories of ideologies not as human beings that ought to be loved whether they espouse our beliefs or not. Love your neighbor and your enemy. Love empowers this, but more than love empowering this, love calls us to take, calls us to take the initiative in bridging those divides. Look at Matthew 5, verses 43 through 44. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the defining nature. This is the response of followers of Jesus. And I'm not saying this, well, you better do this to obey the Lord. I'm saying you're made in the image of love. And if you don't follow this advice, it will invite disintegration into your own soul and heart. You'll bring chaos into your own life because you were not made to hate your enemies. Your nature is love, and the way you work best is to work through your emotions to get to the point where you can model taking the initiative to love those you might consider your enemy, either physically, emotionally, or ideologically. Not only did Jesus bring contrasting people together in his birth, he continued to teach and model this with his life. He befriended the hated tax collectors, even calling one to be in his inner circle. He spoke to a Samaritan woman, breaking more than one taboo in his culture. He even told his followers that if a Roman soldier is, has forced them to carry his pack for him one mile, they should choose to carry it for two. One of his most powerful parables is the one that we call the Good Samaritan. Which is funny that we call it that because that would be a radical oxymoron in this time and culture. In fact, there wasn't even space to consider the Possibility that there could be a good Samaritan. But this is one of Jesus' most famous parables. Jesus held up a character. Think about this. A character who would have been considered of an inferior race and a corrupt religion as the example of what it means to love your neighbor. He offensively chose, and a time or two, I've tried to bring this into modern times and create examples, but I've learned since then that that usually doesn't communicate the point. It just makes half the room angry with me. So I'm not going to do that today. But, think, but what Jesus is doing in that story isn't cute and inspirational. It is downright offensive and an assault on what they would have thought as decency. He holds up a person that would have been considered but not just of an inferior race, which I think that at this point in our human history, we can pretty much reject that. Okay, we can get on board with that. Even if when we heart, in our heart we don't think that way, we know enough that we should say that out loud in public. But the one we still justify is we can judge and reject and assume we can't learn from someone of another religion. But it's not just their race. 
It was that they were of an inferior religion. And Jesus says, that character is the one who embodies obedience to what I'm calling you to do. I want you to go do just like him. It would have been tough for them to hear and to swallow. As I've said, there's divisiveness that's on the way, my friends. I know it and you know it. As I have observed the divisiveness of both our country and sometimes our religion, it is unmistakably clear that the forces that be exploit our fear in order to justify our lack of loving response to our neighbor and our enemy. But the love to which followers of Jesus are called is fearless. And if you allow the love of God to challenge your fear, then loving those you fear becomes much easier to do. John reminds us in 1 John, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love and we love because he first loved us. There is no fear in love. Once we grasp God's love for us, then we can begin to understand how we are called to love others. And I would encourage you, if there is a person or a people group that justified your anger because there's something about them you either disagree with or you just don't understand and you're prone to allow that fear to dictate boundaries to your love, reverse that. Allow love to push the boundaries of your fear. Take time to take steps to overcome that misunderstanding. Get to know your ideological opponent or enemy, not through social media, not through reports of what someone else says they believe, but across a table. The next Jesus revolution will not happen from pulpits and books. It will happen around tables. I'm convinced of it with all my heart, which is why we value the table here in this community. Sit with those you don't understand. Sit with those with whom you disagree. And don't just ask them about their beliefs. Ask them about their lives. Take a moment to hear their story. And as you listen, I would challenge you to ask yourself a question. Would I really believe and respond much differently if I had their story? Because what's beautiful about this action is that I've come to learn I have so much more in common with my enemies than I thought. In fact, every single time I've sat across from a person whom, frankly, I find offensive. Now, that's fair because they probably find me offensive as well. And I remove the labels and I remove the debates about ideology and I hear their story. And this is not, I know I'm prone to exaggeration. I get it. This is an instant which I'm really trying to pull that back. Every single time, the thought that comes in my mind is, 
I honestly don't think I'd be doing as well as they were if that had happened to me. It's happened enough that now it is no longer a discipline. It is a delight to hear the stories of my enemies. And when I come to the table, I come to it with an assumption that we're going to come closer to reconciliation, not further away from it. But in the spirit of Jesus, we take time to love and to listen. So, as we get ready to take common communion, which is great that we're taking common communion as we talk about the way the love of Christ unites us rather than, exp- than exploiting our divides. Or the team can go ahead and come forward. What I want to ask you to do, of course, today is common communion. So you'll come through, receive the elements, go back to your seats, hold on to them because then we'll come, I'll come back up and together we will take the elements together. But, so there's space here. There'll be music that are playing that, 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 that you can sing, you can close your eyes, you can contemplate. But what's most important in this moment in our service is you create space to interact with the Holy Spirit yourself. Set aside the words of other people and just come before the Lord. Ask God to show you the fear that has justified any neglect of love in your life. And it's really quick and simple. Repent and let it go. It doesn't mean your emotions will be in immediate alignment, but it's the beginning step. Repent and let it go. Then consider maybe to make amends Seek forgiveness and give mercy where you have justified unloving actions and attitudes. One of the most, one of the favorite disciplines of my life, and it has to be because I'm getting older, because before this season I had too many insecurities to engage with it. I love the look on people's faces where I come and say, hey, I want to bring up that interaction that happened last week. I was kind of a jerk to you. And I'm sorry. It's amazing because you can tell in those exchanges, we aren't used to people doing that at all. You can have a powerful ministry just by repenting of your jerkiness in front of the people that you were a jerk to. God will use it to show them an aspect of the mercy and kindness of God. And if you're like me, you got a lot of material to work with. I'm looking at some of you. Make amends, seek forgiveness. In doing so, you will push back the darkness and unburden your soul and get back to the life for which God has created you because you were created in the image of love. And that is the way you will be most healthy and satisfied.